Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Voices of the Community, an Indie Star podcast where we feature people who impact the city of Indianapolis and or our state of Indiana. My guest on this episode of Voices of the Community is someone who needs no introduction. That sounds so cliche, but I've always wanted to say it. Alelia Bundles, Emmy Award winning journalist working as a news executive and producer at NBC News and ABC News, author, historian, and great-great-granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker. Bundles is the author of On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker. The book inspired the four-part Netflix series, Self-Made, which I should note is fictional. She is working on her fifth book, The Joy Goddess of Harlem, Alelia Walker and the Harlem Renaissance, a biography of her great-grandmother, Madam C.J. Walker's daughter. Bundles is Vice Chair Emerita of Columbia University's Board of Trustees, Chair Emerita of the Board of the National Archives Foundation, a board member of the March on Washington Film Festival, Indiana Landmarks, and the Smithsonian's American Women's History Initiative. In addition, Bundles is Brand Historian, for Madam by Madam C.J. Walker Hair Caroline. She is an inaugural, inaugural, can't say that word for some reason, <laughs> Center for Amer- African Studies and Cultural Prestigious Fellow in the School of Liberal Arts at IUPUI. And <laughs> she's in town because she recently held a conversation on displacement, development, and heritage on Indiana Avenue. The second installment of the In Conversation Critical Discussion series. I really could go on and on (laughs) as the list of accomplishments goes on and on. But I want to stop right there and welcome our guest. Welcome, Alelia. Oh, Shea, it's a delight to be here with you. Thank you. I am so happy to have you here, especially because your schedule is so busy. (laughs) You are just so busy. And so you and Eunice Trotter. Well, Eunice, Eunice is doing great work. She has thrown herself into this preservation. But let me just say to you how glad I am you that we are talking to each other because you know that I became a big fan of yours oh, while you were you. at the recorder because I know you were, you know, doing double time and triple time thank and you. really, you know, doing good work for the community. So I'm, you know, I'm a fan. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm about to cry. <laughs> Well, as I mentioned in the introduction, you are in Indianapolis because you held a panel discussion, Displacement, Development, and Heritage on Indiana Avenue. Although you don't live in Indianapolis any longer, you have been working to make sure the history isn't erased. Why is this important to you? It's important to me because I know the contributions that many generations of African Americans have made to the fabric of Indianapolis. 
And I am concerned because many generations, even my generation, and I'm 70, people don't know the details and the history Mm -hmm. of that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And this has happened across the country where our neighborhoods are erased. And when you're the, the tangible aspects, the physical aspects of your history are erased, then people believe that you don't have any history. And that's always been our fate. Oh, you don't. African-Americans have no history. Well, we have no history because it was intentionally erased or somebody distorted it. And one of the things that I began to learn as I was doing the research about Madam Walker is that we did not learn it in school. You know, I got a great public school education at (laughs) North Central High School in Washington Township, but my history books lied. Mm -hmm. (laughs) My history books said that. (laughs) And literally, I have the textbook. It said slaves, not enslaved people as we say now, slaves were contented and better off uh, because they were clothed and fed. That was a version of American history that was taught for many generations. We began to correct that in the 1970s and 80s as women's studies and black studies was becoming a part of the academy. And we have had scholars for the last 50 years who have tried to correct that incorrect narrative. And we are now back at a time when there are people who don't want AP African-American history to be taught and who don't want to talk about the facts of American history. They want to go back to the time when it was incorrect. Right. As if that was the correct. Right, exactly. The, the, the correction is now what is seen as incorrect version, which and, is so strange. Well, and, and with Indiana in particular, I definitely did not learn in my Indiana history curriculum, I think in third and eighth grade, about people like my great-great-grandparents on my grandmother's side who were free people of color who moved to Indiana in the 1830s and who settled, who had black settlements in the Roberts settlement in uh, Noblesville, or my father's family who were part of the migration from Kentucky to the south side to the area that's adjacent to Norwood. Mm -hmm. We weren't learning that black people were part of it. And in fact, the overall narrative of black people in the Midwest is we're in flyover country and people don't think we exist. Now, we know Mm -hmm. that Indianapolis has a rich history and a rich culture that involves African-Americans. But I think a lot of our young folks absorb the fact that we have no identity. And so I'm really very interested in putting a stake in the ground to say that we have this story and it must be told. We have no history and no culture. That's what the, the perception is. I'm from Muncie. So I don't know. I didn't know about Indiana Avenue. You know, so when I come here, I see Indiana Avenue as what it's been since I've been here, and to hear about this rich heritage, oh, wow. You know, and then you're talking about your your legacy and your the settlements and, and the history. In talking to Eunice, I started putting things together about my my mother's family, my grandma's family. They were from, and then her, step, her stepmother raised her. My grandmother's family is from Franklin, Indiana. And then my step-grandmother was from Winchester, Indiana. She was born in 1899. Mm-hmm. So she was around until 92, 93. So she died when I was 18. Um, but I didn't realize that her family, both of their families were probably from these settlements mm-hmm. that existed. Because I just thought, there's no black people in Winchester. Mm-hmm. There's no black people in Franklin. You know, and then find out this history. And it's like, wow, that... Mm, None of this was told on this was talked about like we just poof 
We're here in Wednesday now. Right. <laughs> well, and this, you know, Baba Anthony Artis last night talked about doing research on his family. I think some members of his family were married to some members of my family because those families go back, you know, many generations. But we have to tell this story because when when somebody can say you have no history, then they can, it's much easier for them to say you don't belong here. You don't have any stake in this. You don't have any rights to this. But we have to assert ourselves and say yes. And and black folks themselves who don't know are accepting the okie doke that we have no history. I mean, that is, we have to educate ourselves. Yes. First and foremost. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, because you can't run around here ignorant and expect someone else to yeah, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to make the argument um, for being included. You know, I love again. I love very much what Eunice is doing at Indiana Landmark. So she's going around the state, helping people understand the history of their communities. There were black folks everywhere. They were black, we were everywhere except in sundown towns where we were where we were chased out. But I love what is happening now with the cultural scene, the art scene, the yes. music scene with a new generation that is saying, we're staying in Indianapolis. I left Indianapolis in 1970 when I went to college. I came back and I worked at WTLC the summer after I graduated. But I couldn't really get an interview at the TV station. Mm -hmm. And so I moved Mm -hmm. away and I developed my career Mm -hmm. uh, away from Indianapolis. But I love that that you and folks like Molly Jeffers and Alan Bacon and a whole host of people, Kelly Jones, Mm -hmm. are staying and saying, we're going to develop this community. We're going to make this community better. And Mm -hmm. we're going to be a part of this community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is awesome. That's really... Because when you think about it, you had to leave before, you don't have to leave now. We can we can create these things. Now, what I found very interesting from the panel discussion is how what happened in Indianapolis in regards to Indiana Avenue, IUPUI, Interstate 65 and 70, is it happened in black neighborhoods all over the country. I didn't realize that. Indianapolis is not alone. Those aerial shots that were shown almost looked identical. Um, I just sat there and thought, wow. We can't go back and change the past, obviously, but understanding the history is important. What can we do today to avoid repeating past mistakes, especially as efforts are underway to restore, for lack of a better word, these former black neighborhoods, particularly here in Indianapolis? So I think one of the key things is for us to really educate ourselves, and you're right, this happened in countries all over the United States because there was a lot of federal money to build interstate highways. And the interstate highways were being built at a time when the suburbs were becoming the predominant residential areas, the new residential areas, and those suburbs were mostly white. But still there was business in the central core of cities. So when the interstate was being built, they were being built to bring people in from the suburbs to downtown. Mm -hmm. And so they were cutting through the historically black neighborhoods and the poorer neighborhoods, and they just bulldozed those neighborhoods to build highways. Part of the reason they were able to take those neighborhoods over is because of what we now know of as redlining, where literally the banks and the federal government drew red lines around neighborhoods where any black people lived. And they, the banks could say, we don't have to lend money in those areas. All it had to do is have a few Negroes 
And that could be considered an undesirable neighborhood. And you would see it was colored in red. And then the neighborhoods that were predominantly or all white had a different color. So a bank would not lend money if you needed an equity loan to repair a roof, if you needed uh, a mortgage. And so those neighborhoods deteriorated because they didn't have the same advantage of that normal investment that you would have. And so then by the time this 1950s and 1960s with the federal highway money came through, well, those neighborhoods were described as slums. Those people didn't take care of their homes. And therefore, we have the right to go in and bulldoze those neighborhoods. And that happened in Indianapolis and in dozens of cities around the country. Wow. Yeah, wow. That And that idea, that perception still exists today that like we don't care about the neighborhoods. Right. <laughs> and it's and so if that's so I so when you know what can we do now is so the first thing is to understand that the reason that a house in a form in a black neighborhood is worth less than the exact same house a mile away in a white neighborhood is because of this intentional disinvestment. And a lot of people don't want to think about that. Oh, that was the past, but there is the residual effect. There mm-hmm. is the collateral damage that came forward. Then fast forward in, in Indianapolis in 1958, there was a central business development plan that was created by the mayor's office and the city council to say, well, what is it that we can do to make Indianapolis more attractive? There was a big plan, a big report was written up, and they had drawings, and all of the drawings, lovely downtown plazas and waterfalls and all these things, there were no black people in any of those pictures. So the idea was, look, this neighborhood that's kind of near downtown, well, those people will be gone. We won't, they won't. So that, you know, it so may not have been, you know, intentional, intentional, but the impact is that was, was happening. And so then they were able to bulldoze the um, a neighborhood that became Indiana University because of the folks who were planning Unigov. They wanted to have a university. They wanted Indianapolis to be a welcoming place with sports teams. Really great ideas to revitalize your city. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is the collateral damage was education. But it resulted in a university. It resulted in a vibrant downtown. Now, where we are now is that where other neighborhoods in Indianapolis, Massachusetts Avenue, Fountain Square, Broad Ripple, those are neighborhoods that are inviting, walkable yes. areas, mm-hmm. restaurants, uh, nice housing. Indiana Avenue was left out of the planning for what would happen. Mm. And it was not designated as a historic district because there was pushback from the city council. We don't, you know, it's like, well, it's not really that important. And therefore, so all those things were torn down. But now we have downtown, uh, we have Massachusetts Avenue, we have the, the state government, and 16 Tech on the other end of Indiana Avenue. And in between, you have some apartment buildings that have gone up, and you have some parking lots on the IUPUI side of the street. And on the side of the street where the walker is, you've got some other parking lots and, and a building that is going to be torn down. So where we are now, the Walker Madam Walker Legacy Center, when it was created as the Madam Walker Urban Life Center in the early 80s, there was um, an entity that was created to try to do business development. That did not really work out as mm-hmm. planned. The Walker Building itself, thank God it's been saved that it's a National Historic Landmark, but it has never really had a business model that was viable. So you can't sell enough tickets at a high enough price in the theater 
to pay for everything in a building that's 100 years old that has a yeah, lot of maintenance. I was going to say it's, it's an old building. Right. So it's always had these issues. The Lilly Endowment has um, underwritten it, supported it, and, and the Lilly Endowment a few years ago gave this $15 million gift to revitalize it. And it's like, you, now you guys are on your own. Well, the, as a result of the essentially community benefits agreement that went along with the walker controlling that building, there were parcels of land in the 500 block of Indiana Avenue and the 700 block of Indiana Avenue that were essentially owned by the Walker Theater. Okay. They were supposed to use that for economic development. When they got to the point of after this $15 million from the Lilly Endowment was given, they had some uh, some big bills to pay. And the strategy, as I understand it from the board, is that they would sell the parcel on in the 500 block and the parcel in the 700 block. What we saw in a design from a developer in Indianapolis was a very large apartment building that essentially filled up the footprint mm -hmm. between the Walker Building and the Urban League. But it was such a generic, unattractive, inappropriate building, and that's my opinion of mm -hmm. it, that there was pushback from the community. Young folks reclaim Indiana Avenue were like, no, we they realized that their history was there because their grandparents had lived mm -hmm. in the neighborhood. Paula Brooks, who's been in the trenches for years, the work that the Black Lives Matter mural artists mm -hmm. were doing, and, as well as DMD and as well as a lot of other entities in the city, said this is just not the right thing. This doesn't fit. This doesn't have any reference to the heritage. I mean, some people try to say, oh, it sort of looks like the Walker Building. It didn't have, any, it didn't have anything that looked like the Walker Building that was there. And because we were in that moment of COVID mm -hmm. and George Floyd, mm -hmm. there was enough galvanizing around this that it got put. There was pushback. 300 people signed up to go to the DMD to give their opinions about it. And ultimately, maybe it wasn't going to work financially because of COVID, but the developer decided not to go forward with that. But now there is a new developer who okay. owns the 500 block, um, Rodney Burns, who works with Arrow Street, and he is beginning to develop it. So for me, we are at a moment where there is a developer who who is going to develop that 500 block, possibly also the 700 block. He has an option on that. But there have to be all the stakeholders who come together. I don't believe, and certainly I would be out there standing <laughs> with my picket sign if somebody tried to put up an ugly building. But we're now at a point where you can't do what the guys who did Unigov did. You can't go into a closed room behind closed doors and make decisions that yes. affect everybody else. That time is over. That time is over. Yes. And so part of what I was hoping to do last night was to make people aware, because a lot of people are just totally unaware that any of this is going on and that this is the last moment when we might have some ability to create a vibrant two blocks. It's not We're not going to go back to the past. You can't go back. You don't want to go back to the past. What is it that we can do that honors the heritage but that also brings some economic viability? Mm -hmm. So what can we do going forward? The thing that has to happen and the hard thing is all the stakeholders have to be at the table, and that includes Indiana University. It includes the Madam Walker Legacy Center. It includes the Department of Metropolitan Development. It includes the City County Council. Uh, it includes philanthropic organizations, other developers, 
uh, other corporations. Urban League is sitting there mm-hmm. as part of that block. So all of those stakeholders, as well as the community mm-hmm. who've been, the people who've been there, have to come together. Now, there are a lot of people who are thinking about this, who are doing work on this, but there's not, at the moment, as far as I know, people in the same room saying, we're going to make something positive happen. There's some people who are saying, I want to develop this and I want to make some money. And there's some people who are saying, I really wish you would do this. And there are other people saying, I really wish you would go away and not make me think about this. But I just really believe that we cannot let this moment pass. And they're not in the same room. They're not. Yeah, some, some, of them, okay. some of them are in the same room. Some of them know what the others are saying. But there's not, um, there's not a will to do something that is not only money-driven. Mm, that's key. That's key. I mean, listen, as much as as controversial and as complicated as Unigov is, the and and as le- and it left black folks out, even though the folks who created it don't really want to, you know, own quite own up to that. Because but it made the city better in some ways. Their objective was what is it what is it that we need to do? Who needs to be at the table so that we can make sure that we give tax credits to get the sports teams here, that we can build a convention center, you know, all the other things that they were trying to do. But there were some decisions that we would make the financial piece work in order to have something that was attractive. Not that we're just going to put up a building and and an individual developer or investors makes money. What is it that we're going to do to create a neighborhood that is going Mm. to welcome people that's going to be attractive to tourists it's going to be attractive to visitors who live in the suburb. It's going to be attractive to people who work downtown. But if there is the will, it can be created. It sure can. When there's a will, there is a way. Mm-hmm. We will make a way. <laughs> you have been a force when it comes to um, keeping the... Did I ever ask that question? No, about okay. Mount Walker. Yeah. Sorry, Clark. I know. Listen, because Clark, I'm going. You know, I go off on tangents. It's not O'Shea's fault. You got to edit this part out, Clark. Well, I moved my I moved my paper up, my document up, so I can stay where know where I'm at. And then I messed up. Sorry, Clark. <laughs> you have been a force when it comes to keeping the legacy of Madam Walker alive. What drove you, and still drives you, to make Madam Walker more than just a footnote in history? When I was growing up. My mother worked at the Walker Company, and I would go with her to her office. The silverware that we used every day had Madame Walker's monogram on it. Um, The piano that I learned to read music on had belonged to her daughter, Alelia Walker. But the absolute last thing in the world I thought I would be doing is telling Madame Walker's story. You know, both of my parents worked in the hair care business. I was interested in writing. I loved writing. I wanted to be a journalist. They supported that. Um, dream of mine and said, you got, you have to do your own thing. You have to be your own person. So when I went to college, in junior high school, I worked in the newspaper and at North Central, I was on the newspaper in college. I worked at the radio station. And when I went to Columbia uh, for journalism school, my advisor in the fall of 1975 was a sister named Phyllis Garland, the only black woman on the faculty. And she was my master's paper advisor and we talked about my topics for my master's paper, and I gave her some cliched, boring topics. And at the end of the conversation, she said, your name is Alelia. Do you have any connection to Madam Walker and Alelia Walker? 
Mm. I'm pretty sure she knew the answer because she'd been a writer and editor mm-hmm. at Jet. Her mother mm-hmm. had been uh, editor of the Pittsburgh Courier, first black woman editor of wow. Pittsburgh Courier. Um, and so when she said, well, do you, know, do you have any connection to them? I said, yeah, that's my family. She said, that's what you're going to write your paper about. So that was the fall of 1975. At a moment when there were very few books being written, or at least published by, they may have been written published by black authors, Roots had come out. That was huge. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. there wasn't anybody else validating for me, that for me. But Phyllis really planted that seed. So when I began to do that research, and I, you know, then it turned into a children's book, and then I did research for Alex Haley for a book that he was going to write that he never wrote, but that in some ways was my platform that launched me into really serious research and being taken seriously. So I realized that it's amazing. There had never been a book written about this amazing woman, but it also was that period of time during the 70s when black studies and women's studies were really uh, becoming Mm -hmm. in vogue and when scholarship was being taken seriously. And I realized I had one of the most powerful and most interesting and inspirational stories that had not yet been told. Yes. I think I told you my daughter was Madam C.J. Walker one time for a wax museum. I did. I, just, I, I love, love, love that. And I see, you know, I, when I do book signings or I do speeches, somebody will, you know, who's 30 years old will come up and say, you know, when I was doing my report, I sent you an email and you sent me, you answered my questions. And I'm like, I am so glad. I'm so glad you said that as opposed to I ignored you. But there, I have so many wonderful stories. And that's why it's so much fun to, for me to tell the story because it does inspire other people, whether it's kids who are in wax museums or women who are started their own companies or CEOs. But it also allows me to frame American history, and especially at this moment mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. our history is being suppressed. You know, I it's been fascinating to me how people, different people latch on to her story in different ways. And I've had a little bit of a, you know, some kind of QAnon type folks who've latched onto her story and they mm. would, you know, they think, oh, she's up by her bootstraps and why can't the rest of you all be like that? And I just kind of, you know, I just kind of laugh because I'm like, do you, do you really know she's Black Lives Matter yes. 1.0? Do you really understand that she was uh, a woman whose parents had been enslaved, who was a washerwoman because she couldn't get another job, who provided jobs for black women so they wouldn't have to be maids and laundresses and sharecroppers, and that she gave her money to the NAACP's anti-lynching fund. She was spied upon by the federal government uh, and called a Negro subversive because she was protesting about the way black soldiers were being treated during World War One, and she was speaking out about civil rights. So I, oh, think, no. I think you don't quite understand who they she really like is. <laughs> Much like Dr. King. Right, exactly. The idea of, of Dr. King, and we love him now. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> and and I, that's what I want people to know. It's like the hair care part is, you know, that's interesting. But that's not my, and it, it's fascinating. She created a product that thousands of women wanted, but I think over a period of time, the hair care products became kind of a means to an end because she realized that women, yeah, they wanted hair care products. Women wanted to look good. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But she realized it was a means to an end because they needed education and they needed jobs and they needed financial independence. In here, the hair care part was the outside thing, but they needed that self-confidence and self-esteem inside. Exactly. And that's what the whole hair care 
gay helped give them. It helped give them a means to earn mm-hmm. a living. To, so therefore, you could. It's just it's just so much wrapped up in that one product. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's it's the, it's the hope in a jar. You know that yeah. she put her own image on the front of her products. That was revolutionary for a black woman. Yes. To have the confidence to do that. So that's that's why I tell the story, because it never gets old for me to find the pieces of her story that are still relevant for people today. And you never know who one part is going to resonate with. That's right. Like, you know, it's an awesome story. It's just an awesome story. Just to think about, it's not even the millionaire part. Right. It's just, this woman had the wherewithal to do this at a time when it was unheard of. Right. And you're right. The millionaire part is like I know people wonder like was she the, was she the first woman, the first American woman, the first black person? What was the what was it? And I'm like, well, you know, it's interesting. That's an interesting thing. Tyrone McKinley Freeman, professor at Indiana University School of Philanthropy, who's written a wonderful mm-hmm. book called Madam Walker's Gospel of Giving. Tyrone and I joke about the millionaire sweepstakes. It's like okay, that's fine. Yes, we we know we can document it because we have tens of thousands of pages of her records at the Indiana Historical Society because she was smart enough to hire F.B. Ransom as her attorney uh, who kept all the records. That's why we can tell the story. But the millionaire part, it's interesting. But for me, it's not the thing that I really care about the most. And you just, she was smart. Mm -hmm. Like, she was very intelligent. We could go on and on. (laughs) (laughs) But let's stay here for, uh, on family for a bit. There's a term that's popular today that's been, it's probably been used forever, but it's really on social media a lot now. Black excellence. Hashtag black excellence. <laughs> you have a legacy of black excellence. Your family has long been a part of the fabric of Indianapolis as a whole, but particularly the black community in Indianapolis. How did your family's history, it's a several part question. Mm-hmm. How did your family's history shape you? Were you even aware of this legacy during your childhood? If you were, did it create pressure to live up to expectations or were you just living your life and then one day it hit you? Maybe when you're a professor, you know, did it finally hit you like, oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. So okay, ask right. me what, one by one. Okay. Ask me those questions one okay. by one. <laughs> How did your family's history shape you? You know, my parents both expected me to be a good student. and But I loved school, so that wasn't a problem. They just encouraged me. So I was like the... You know, reading early and counting my numbers to a thousand early and, you know, just just going to the library in the summer and reading all the books that I could. And, you know, both my parents were really good students. I mean, that I didn't know that about them as a kid. But but excellence was expected in in our household. And that was important to me. And so I followed that. And every step along the way, I watched my parents as community leaders. Uh, and as business leaders. And so I just modeled myself after them. But they also were smart enough uh, and wise enough not to say, well, you have to do what we do. We we want you to do the thing that you love. And as I became involved in writing for the junior high school newspaper at Westlane, I learned that my dad had been one of the first, if not the first, graduate in journalism at IU in Bloomington. Wow. You know, he was he went to the, you know, worked for the school newspaper, um, there are pictures of him in the yearbook, the only black person in the whatever the journalism honor society is. He went off to the war, came back, had worked for Stars and Stripes. But when he came back to Indianapolis after he graduated and he applied for jobs, he couldn't get a job on the editorial side at the newspapers here 
but he became manager of the Paper Boys. Um, and I don't remember whether it was for the Star or the News. And so he managed some of the guys who played basketball at um, at Attics. Hallie Bryant was one of his paper boys. Mm. And so that was that sort of sent him on the business side, and he began to work for the Walker Company and then uh, then was, became president of Summit Laboratories and ultimately at CLD. But that sense of, you know, you figure out a way that you're going to make something excellent out of what you do, that was just expected of me. Wow. Were you aware of his legacy during your childhood, or did it hit you later? You know, I was absolutely aware of it, but in a way that wasn't pressured. And we definitely did not sit around the dining room table talking about Madeline Walker. <laughs> um, but but the silverware that we used yes. every day had her monogram on it, and and my and my mom went to work at the Walker Building, so I would go in her office and play on her typewriter and her adding machine before computers and calculators. So I had a sense of it. But it was something that was just kind of remote for me. It was there was no expectation about me being a part of it. So no science lab, no going in there and start whipping up some hair care products. You know, you know, listen, it's funny when you say science lab. My my mother was a chemistry and business major at Howard. Wow. But I didn't have the science gene <laughs> like my mother, so I wasn't. But she was really, really smart. But yeah, I did. That was not what I was. That was not what I was drawn to. I, I made it through high school chemistry, but it was like not my Me favorite too. thing. <laughs> Me too. Made it by a prayer. <laughs> now, there's something that I've, as as you as you've been talking to me, I've noticed, and something that you and Eunice both share. Like you're not necessarily doing journalism, but you still are. You're still telling stories. Like that's been the weave. The I guess the the thread throughout your whole life and your whole career is the storytelling part. Um, it's just so awesome to just see how it evolves over time that no matter what, you're still telling these awesome stories. It, it, that's, I mean, it's so true. I guess it's like a lawyer who, you know, is not practicing <laughs> law but is doing things. But it is, I, I started as a storyteller. At eight years old, I told a story. I wrote a story about going to the moon. This was before people had gone to the moon. And one of my mother's friends who was working on her master's in education um, one summer, you know, read the story and she sent it to the Jack and Jill magazine and it got published. So I was published at eight. So oh I thought, I thought, I thought well, I was, you started making your own. Legacy exactly. At eight. At eight. <laughs> but that story, that's who I started as a storyteller. That's why I was drawn to journalism, because that was the avenue that was open. There was no opportunity to go to Hollywood and be a writer for a show, but it was journalism that drew me in. And initially it was, you would write for the women's page. That was, you know, that was sort of all that was open. But those doors began to open. And in some ways, following that 30-year career at NBC and ABC, I was learning storytelling skills. But now I use those storytelling skills to tell the story, not just of Madam Walker, but the story of African Americans, the story of women, and I use my family as kind of a foundation for that. But I just, I love helping people find their genealogy. I, you know, that for me is the, for my, and what I really believe our stories are our power. That if we know who we are, if we know who our ancestors are, it gives us just a little bit of a lift to keep going and to keep pushing the next generation. Yes. Yes, that is so true. So true. My last question for you. Any thoughts about Indianapolis that you like to leave us with? You know, and I am I am so glad that I grew up in Indianapolis. 
I grew up in a community of parents who worked hard, who had great expectations for us, who supported us, and I benefited from the village in Indianapolis. Um, it, it was It's a loving community. It's a warm community. And we were isolated from some of the difficulties that were you know, out there in mm-hmm. the larger mm-hmm. world. It is a town that I believe um, aspires to greatness and has some moments of greatness. But I think there is so much that we can be doing. And part of the reason that I am on so many advisory boards is that I believe that I've benefited from going away and gaining some skills and gaining mm. some perspective. But I know there are lots of really smart, talented people here who I've been able to collaborate with and work with. And I want to be able to be, you know, in collaboration with them and share and learn what is happening here and offer the skills and the perspective that I have. So I'm just, I'm so excited about being a part of what's going on. And, you know, from a distance, you can only do, you know, you can only do so much from a distance. But I learned something new Every day, I just spoke to the students uh, in the Africana Studies program uh, at IUPUI this morning, and they're doing a whole class on the history of Indiana Avenue. Mm. And we, some of them, came to the program, and we talked about that. And I said, "What would you like to see? You know, we we don't we're not going to recreate the past. You can't recreate the past. But what is it that you would like to see on Indiana Avenue? I know I have my dreams. What are yours?" And they began to say, well, we need a place where we can be creative, where we can make music, where we can make art, where we can start businesses. And I'm like, that's that's what my generation and the folks between me and you should be listening to. No, you, you're not going to recreate the past. That's not the goal. But don't put something up that doesn't honor the past, that doesn't reference the past. And listen to these young people. When I see what Gang Gang is doing, what mm-hmm. Molly Jeffers and Alan Bacon and all of the artists who are in the We the Culture mm-hmm. exhibit and the musicians and the culture scene that's going on with young people of color in Indianapolis, that is where we need to be tapping in. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. want to, you know, I'm not them, but I want to do whatever I can to support that and just to let them flourish because I know they're the ones who are going to create the future. And if I can just be a little part of that conversation, that's what I want to do. Wow. Wow. This has been such a great conversation. Alelia Bundles, thank you so much for joining me. Totally my pleasure. Our guest on the next episode of Voices of the Community is Ebony Chappelle, Program and Communications Director for Leadership Indianapolis, Executive Director of Friends of Belmont Beach, and host of her own podcast, What's Good with Ebony Chappelle, and co-founder of Black Women's Writing Society and co-creator of the Testimony Service. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. 
Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.